Welcome to Voices of Care, the podcast series from New Cross Healthcare that seeks to get to the very heart of the issues affecting the health and social care sector in the UK by truly asking the questions about how we can enable the healthcare workforce of the future. I'm Sahel Mirza, and it's a truly extraordinary time. The NHS, hardly out of the news, facing a funding squeeze according to some that it hasn't seen since the 1950s. It's vitally important, therefore, to hear from leaders who are at the forefront of policy and practice. And I'm delighted in that regard to welcome my guest today, Professor Tim Orchard, Chief Executive of Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. Tim, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you, and thank you for making time to join us today. A great pleasure. Thanks for asking me. I'll get straight to the heart of the matter. The Health and Social Care Select Committee reported in the summer. Uh, Jeremy Hunt was chair and he's uh, got uh, more responsibilities on his table uh, as we speak. And he claimed that this was the worst crisis, workforce crisis in the NHS and social care's history. Um, You have a long and distinguished career in the NHS. Is it a crisis? What's the extent of the crisis? Or is it hyperbole? Thankfully, I haven't been around the entire history of of the NHS, (laughs) but uh, so it's difficult to say, taking a, a sort of whole NHS view, but actually you know, from the 30 years I have been in the health service, this does feel like quite a significant crisis to me. I think it's something that's built up over you know, a number of decades. I think it's always it's notoriously difficult to workforce plan accurately, but I think you know, if you think about where we are in terms of the number of doctors that we've got trained, the number of nurses that we've got trained, actually the number of physios, OTs, we haven't been producing them in large enough numbers to cope with you know, what has seems like almost exponential increase in demand. And of course, you know, no one would have predicted the pandemic and what that threw at us. But I think what it's done is to highlight the weaknesses in our workforce planning um, that were there previously. And as you say, um, there were over 100,000 vacancies prior to the pandemic. And it's across all uh, occupation groups. And this is really a global issue. I mean, it's uh, uh, affecting shortages, are affecting um, all um, healthcare systems. I wanted to see, now we've obviously now moved into a new statutory framework for the NHS with the integrated care systems uh, coming on stream de facto uh, under legislation in July. It's early days, um, but I know there's been some quite uh, innovative and fo- uh, forward-thinking work in northwest london where you've been part of uh, the collaboration of a broader group of acute trusts before we go into the detail of that a, a more broader question do you see hope uh, with the ICSs in a systems approach in terms of the workforce because there's the, traditionally trusts have quite naturally been in competition uh, for staff as well um, one of the hopes for the ics was there would be more uh, collaboration which is of course a key term in terms of your own values as a trust so I think one of the key things about the ICS is, is that the formation of collaboratives has made people think about how different organisations work together. So I do think that gives an opportunity for workforce to move between the organisations that are within the collaboratives, also within the, IC, within the ICS more generally. But I think that probably it's that sort of movement between organisations in the collaboratives that gives us the greatest opportunity, particularly where the sort of work areas that you're covering are broadly similar. So if you've got an acute collaborative, then obviously you've got a range of professionals that can move probably quite easily between, uh, between organisations. I do think there's a sort of There's a noted caution to throw in here, which Mm. is that it's very tempting to treat people as a sort of workforce commodity Mm. that you can simply move around at will um, because you've got gaps. And, of course, actually, 
the only way we're going to keep people in the health service is if we provide them with satisfying jobs in the long term that pay appropriate attention to their health and well-being, that give them a sense of um, job satisfaction and that they work as a team. And I think if you're not careful uh, and you suddenly just start to sort of move people around like chess pieces on a chessboard, then you can run into a situation where actually you you break down that effective team working and then you know, people then leave. So it's a question of balancing the systems requirement to individuals' uh, career aspirations. Um, and workforce planning, you use the phrase, um, it's something that's banded around. It's notoriously difficult to do because there are so many variables. And there was, of course, a call in the uh, committee stage of uh, the legislation that uh, brought the ISSs into uh, uh, force, uh, that there should be a duty uh, to have data on this. Uh, Is that something that uh, you think perhaps we'll see come back in because it's so important as demand continues to rise? I think that given that we've got professions where there is an absolute cap on training so for example there's an absolute cap on the number of doctors that can be trained in any given year and you know we know that with the the pandemic was a very good example we had we had a large number of offers made that universities committed to the following year they wanted the cap lifted but there was an absolute no uh, from the center that said you're going to have to reduce the number of people you admit the subsequent year so mm. um i do think there is if you've got that sort of situation where you've got an absolute cap, then you've got to have some idea about what the right number of people to train is. Otherwise, you're going to get a mismatch. And we are relying on overseas recruitment a lot. Um, and, and that's an incredibly helpful thing for the health service. But we do need to think more carefully about matching who we're training to where we think we're going to need yeah. them in 10 years. Um, you, you obviously touched upon, we, we talk a lot about expanding the workforce, growing numbers, 50,000 new nurses, attraction. I'd like to meditate upon retention, of course, which I think is a, a, as important, if not more, um, and deal with the subject of wellness, um, mm. burnout. Uh, we've had the pandemic. Um, you took the reins as CEO in 2018. I, could not quite expect what you'd be going through. Um, but the, the figures, again, Health and Social Care Select Committee back in the summer of 2021 talked about burnout at emergency levels. Um, the GMC have reported up to two-thirds of medical trainees uh, reporting moderate or high levels of burnout. So this is a real issue. It's a challenge. And wanted to really have your insight in terms of the work that the trust has done uh, over the course of the pandemic and, and now and it's not always about i think as you said uh, the big stuff it's the the small iterations that mm. make a, a profound difference over time i think that's right i mean i think that people need a degree of resilience to work in healthcare i think because you are constantly dealing with people who who seek our services at the time when they are most vulnerable, when they are most afraid, and um, you know where there can be some you know, difficult discussions and and on occasions challenging behaviour. So you need a, a sort of baseline of, of resilience. The problem is if you then layer on top of that a whole bunch of stuff that that doesn't need to be there, it becomes something that sort of drags people down. And I think the huge psychological stress of the pandemic, I think, really, really focused our minds on well-being. I think that I don't believe that we have yet seen the end of that pandemic effect. I think that different people take a lot of different time to process sort of major traumatic events. And I think that we will see people sort of come to terms with that over the, the course of the next months and years. And so we may see a sort of drip feed of people out of the health service as a result of, of of them sort of gradually processing the trauma. I think the things that we can do, you're right. I think if you ask people, 
you know, it's terribly tempting. Um, and and, and um, if you're raising money, so people like to raise money for, for things that, that, that are big, mm. grand gestures. But actually the things that are really important to people are that they get um, food and drink when they're working, that they can um, take their breaks, and that there is somebody sort of vaguely looking out for them and making sure that, that they are okay. I think that there is stuff that you can do. So one of the things that we focused on is thinking about staff rest areas. Mm. And um, we have um, some notoriously difficult estate at Imperial College Healthcare, and that's quite a significant euphemism. <laughs> um, uh, and it's very difficult sometimes because we spend a lot of money on keeping all of the patient areas going. And if you're not careful, you then don't look after the staff areas. So we've just spent uh, about £2 million um, refurbishing staff areas. And a design company have done some fantastic work with us to, to create these really lovely areas. And we did some great work to create some sort of flagship spaces in each of our uh, hospitals where all staff can go and actually just get a break away from their normal work environment but actually they can sit down and it's got the connectivity you need to check the internet and recharge your uh, phone and uh, and sit down and have a chat with your colleagues um and actually we got um students from king's college london um, in, in design to come and help <laughs> us work on that and, and they've, they've been incredibly um popular but i do think there's those things i you know in some sense they're not rocket science but they do make a difference to to people's daily lives i think you know, then you've got a whole range of other stuff which is sort of what you might call more traditional support so yeah. making sure that you've got counseling and, and all of those sorts of supports people know where they can go if they are struggling a staff offering that that helps people to deal with some of the, the more acute parts of the cost of living crisis you're getting um, discounts at supermarkets and all those sorts of things so there's a a range of other stuff but but it's i think it needs to be sort of considered so i think you need to ask people Mm. I think it needs to be consistent um, and and it sort of needs to be the things that people want rather than the things that you want to do. No, absolutely. And, and the, the, the workforce data has shown that uh, record numbers left in the NHS in the first quarter of 21-22. But as you say, this is an ongoing challenge likely to remain. And uh, I think, as you say, if you listen and make the changes, perhaps in an iterative way, uh, as people nuance their response, um, we're much more likely to win that battle of retention. Um, I wanted to change tack slightly and look at um, the, the role of technology. The trust has been uh, uh, recognised uh, by the HSJ in terms of driving uh, um, efficiency through technology. Electronic patient records not a subject that's covered the NHS in glory, but uh, you've had some great recognition there. But broadening it out, um, yourself a, a celebrated um, physician, um, technology also has a role to play in the retention uh, battle um, because it allows potentially um, clinicians to work far more effectively, more efficiently in the face of we've got massive backlogs and demand. Are there any things that you're particularly proud of that have driven that uh, support for clinicians at the Trust? So I think, yeah, I mean, we've uh, had um, an electronic patient record now for eight or nine years and 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 that has been incredibly helpful uh, i think that you can access um data in a way that that, that you couldn't before i think the link with what uh, we call care information exchange where patients can access their own data uh, i think has been incredibly helpful i think that again there's an the danger with technology is is that um you know and, and there are lots of people who are very keen for us to use their particular piece of technology to support patient care and of course what you have to do is to make sure that you know what question it is you are trying to answer and i think we've got good clinical systems i think we and a 
and many other trusts, I suspect, could do better in making sure that our clinical systems and our administrative systems link together more effectively. Because I think at the moment, my view would be if you get in front of one of our clinicians, you generally get a very good experience. Sometimes the the admin processes um, fall behind that. And of course, if you go into a sort of implementing technology with the view that you're doing it to, to remove um, you know, sort of human beings, then you'll have a problem. I think you need to go in and say, what questions that we're trying to answer? What are we trying to make better? And often, actually, it makes it easier for people, and you may need fewer people, but but I think you need to go in with that sort of quite uh, considered approach to trying to work out what problem it is you're trying to solve. No, absolutely. And that goes hand in glove with um, some of the other initiatives that um, we've seen across the NHS, but at the Trust, in terms of um, broadening uh, the pathways uh, and the roles that uh, people play, so the nurse associates, etc. Um, and I think there's been some uh, success that you've had in terms of tackling uh, the n- nurse vacancy rate, which I think has dropped uh, over this period. So I just wanted to expand upon what you're doing in terms of um, the broadening of the roles that uh, are on offer. Yeah, I think that... Again, everybody, I think, is trying to really link into their local populations in a yeah. way that they haven't done. So one of the things that Northwest London has done very successfully, actually, is to recruit. We had a big uh, healthcare support workers uh, recruitment drive and had a, a recruitment day at uh, Lord's Cricket Ground where we um, uh, we recruited over 600 local people to come and work in our hospitals. And I think that getting people who are at you know, are sort of emotionally invested in your hospitals because actually that's where they and their family get treatment, I think is a really important and helpful thing. And I think if you can then map a path um, that takes them from healthcare support workers through either the apprenticeships or the associate uh, schemes into um, you know, registered roles, I think that's an incredibly helpful thing. And you know, we, like everybody else, are trying to make sure that we are using people at the top of their licence um, you know, where at all possible. And I think that you know, one of the issues about retention and you know, people in my organisation who be bang on about this a lot um, is being really clear that we have got an absolutely consistent set of values that that permeate every single thing that we do, and that the values lead to the way that we behave with each other, and that that drives a set of behaviours that make people want to stay. And you know, we've got fourteen and a half thousand people in our organisation, and it's. It's a big cultural shift to make people um, really think in that way. But we, for example, have completely revised our disciplinary policy. Um, We have really focused on getting the grievance process sorted out, so it's much more about conflict resolution. Um, And we've just launched a big program called Improvement Through People Management, which is to try and upskill every single person who has responsibility for another human being in the organisation. Because I think that if you look at our staff survey, and actually I suspect quite a lot of staff Mm. surveys across the um, UK, one of the real issues is um, relationships with immediate managers. So if you can get those things right, and a lot of what comes across my desk are situations where you can see that if they'd sorted it out at the first meeting, if they had managed to resolve a problem, they could actually have taken something positive out of the situation. By the time you know it gets to me, um, you've got really entrenched views and, and it's really difficult to, to sort the problems out. So I think it's building good relationships um, between um, managers and their teams I think is an incredibly important aspect and it's it's an old HR truism isn't it that people join an organization and leave a manager Um, but I do think it's a really important thing so I think if you're thinking about retention there's clearly 
how does my organization regard me and, and my, my well-being, which we've talked about? There's a little bit about what are the values, how am I treated on a day-to-day yep. basis? And then the third thing, which we sort of touched on, is a bit about, well, do I, how do I see my career progressing in this organization? And um, you know, what opportunities are there going to be for me? And very importantly, actually, which I haven't quite touched on, is, is that fair? Mm. So, so that thing about... Is there absolute equity across the organisation? Does everybody have the same opportunity to progress um, if they want to? No, absolutely. And I think that's quite an interesting initiative because, again, the NHS workforce data supports the idea that the challenge with your immediate manager can be a source of great tension. Um, And I'll take the opportunity to to, to congratulate you. The the trust has been shortlisted for uh, uh, organisational culture uh, in in relation to uh, engagement, which is quite a big topic. Uh, Just a side track, um, because you've talked about fairness, um, equality, diversity, inclusion is fundamental. We've had the NHS people promise. Just want to touch upon that because there's a lot of rhetoric, there's a lot of huge commitment around that. Um, Apart from the moral imperative, uh, it's also a a operational imperative in terms of retention and attraction for, uh, particularly if one has a, as you do in London, a diverse uh, population that you serve. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think Yes, there is a moral imperative. There's also the fact that you know it's important that your health workforce looks like the population that they're serving. I think that's quite an important thing. I think that, as you say, if if people sense that things are are unfair, then it it puts them off because they don't think they'll get a, a a fair crack of the whip. And you're right. There's an awful lot of initiatives at the moment. But I think that a lot of what we have to do is sort of just the hard yards. So we have to put in place things that make people think about it. I mean, we've, um, one of a number of institutions, um, we've instituted a situation where for band seven posts and above, um, every panel has to be completely diverse. Yeah, that goes for all all, um, all of the posts in the organisation. But the chairperson has to write to me to explain um, who they've shortlisted and why they've shortlisted them and why they've appointed the people that they have um, with a particular emphasis on understanding the issues about ethnicity because we know that um, there has been a problem with people not being appointed from shortlist if they come from a BAME background. And actually, it's quite interesting. We had some interesting discussions at our all-staff um, briefings where people said, you know, surely you just need the best man for the job, which um, I think highlighted a number of issues. Um, <laughs> but... Um, the uh, the process has made. I said to people, the process is designed to make you think. So it's very tempting to interview a post and think what I need is exactly the same as the person who's just left. But actually, what you need is to think more broadly about how the job can be done and what's the range of skills you're being offered by the people who come for interview. And so I think that we've um, that has, I think, helped people a little bit. I think the other thing is um, that for internal candidates, mm-hmm. um, we then provide quite detailed feedback and it's sort of then fed into their personal development plans for the for the following year. So that if they apply for another job, they, they're a bit more likely to um, be successful. But it's just a question of doing that over and over and over again. And every now and then people will be able to point to instances where there has been perceived or actual unfairness and, and you just have to work through them. And I think, you know, we've been, I've been chief executive now for four and a bit years and I think we're beginning to see some changes, but, you know, we've got an awful long way to to go before we have really embedded this and 
you know, it's demonstrably fair. And I think that's, you know, that's where we're all trying to get to is that you have a culture that is demonstrably fair to everybody. No, absolutely. And it's interesting to hear about how the selection process uh, uh, underpins. I think one of the values is uh, to be aspirational uh, at the Trust. And that is a, a, fabulous, a, a fabulous aspiration. I, I wanted to wrap up our conversation um, to look at this tremendous change. It's the understatement of the year um, taking place within the health and social care system envisaged by the long-term plan and shift to community settings, new models of care. There's a huge list. Um, many commentators say that in order to make this an actuality, the importance of leadership needs to be emphasised. Now, um, I sort of dusted off the Griffiths report from 1983, um, which is now, we're now at a 40-year anniversary almost. And one of the recommendations was to have more clinicians, doctors, in leadership roles. Chris Ham, Sir Chris Ham has opined in for the King's Fund that uh, there's an engagement gap perhaps between uh, clinicians and leadership opportunities. And that there's some evidence to show that it's not just a, a good thing to do, but it actually drives um, engagement and inclusion. You, you are a, a clinician, you're a leader. Can we talk a little bit about how important that is and, and what's the distinction, if there is one, between medical leadership and management? Sorry, yeah, it's a big all, question. All, all, all yeah, really straightforward <laughs> question in one sentence. Uh, so I think that leadership is really important. I think, though, it's very tempting to assume that the way through all of all problems in the NHS is through heroic leadership. Um, and of course, actually, it's about building a coalition of people who have a common aim, uh, which is generally in the health service to provide the best possible care they can for patients and. Yeah, that requires a whole load of people to do a whole load of things. And so that heroic leadership model probably is not is not terribly effective. I think you know, you talked about clinical leadership and medical leadership. For medical leadership, mm. I think is a is a very interesting question. Clearly, in most organizations there are some absolutely key medics who, you know, who drive clinical excellence in their own departments. But they may do that completely outside the um management structure of the trust Actually, chief executive of my met many years ago one kept longhorn cattle and he said if you want to drive your longhorn cattle um, out of a field into the next field um, you need to identify who the key cow is and it's not the one who's at the front <laughs> um, and and it's the same in any clinical department there will be somebody who is the clinical leader Mm. But they won't necessarily be the clinical manager. And so then you have a very interesting tension. So I do think there is a really important role. And I do think you can get much greater engagement by encouraging um, doctors into management roles if um, they are temperamentally suited to it. Mm. But, of course, the fundamental issue is, you know, are you a good manager? Are you, do you have the the right set of people skills to build the coalitions to get stuff done and um some doctors do and some doctors don't in the same way that some nurses do and some nurses don't or physios or ot's or anybody else people so i think um it it, it, it it's certainly a helpful thing to have some um, very senior um, clinical leaders and managers and i think that you know, at the top of NHS organisations, it is a combination of leadership of the organisation and you know, managing the services. But 
I, it would it would not be fair to say that only doctors can do that, or doctors are automatically going to be better. And 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 I think that's clear in whatever background you have, if you have the propensity and the desire and the will to take on the challenge. Um, and it's there now. I mean, there's a there's a broader structure within the NHS supporting leadership and training. Uh, are you seeing more um, medical and uh, clinician background people who who are grasping the nettle? It's a challenging role to say yeah. the least so i think we are we are seeing um more uh, clinician chief executives generally speaking mm. i mean i think i i still do um clinical sessions um i know one or two others that do a lot uh, um don't i think there are some advantages to doing clinical sessions partly because you understand some of people's day-to-day frustrations so i think that there are increasing numbers what we don't have is a pathway a good mm. enough pathway and of course it's there's something about being a doctor and a leader which is something about earning your clinical spurs, earning a level of clinical credibility. And so, you know, if you go straight from your registrar training into um, NHS management, do you actually have, do you have an advantage or actually do you have a disadvantage Mm. with your consultant colleagues because actually you haven't done the, if you like, the day job as they would see it? As you say, perhaps that's something for uh, people to consider in terms of policymakers, a pathway uh, for that leadership. Tim, it's a pleasure always uh, to share time with you. Thank you for making the time and sharing your wisdom with us. Pleasure. If you've enjoyed this episode of Voices of Care, please like, follow or subscribe wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you want more information about how we are truly enabling the healthcare workforce of the future, please visit newcrosshealthcare forward slash voices of care. In the meantime, I'm Sahail Mirza. Thank you and goodbye.